going to introduce Bill, and he is going to take it from there. Um, Bill is a co-founder and partner at Flare Capital Partners here in Boston, where he invests in emerging healthcare technology companies. He's on the board of the MGH Institute of Health Professions, is an appointee of Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker to the Oversight Council of the Center for Health Information and Analysis, and he serves on the Advisory Council of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Bill, and you'll introduce the other panelists. Thank you. Oops. Ricardo. Did Ricardo leave his key? Myself, my four favorite venture capitalists, but my three favorite venture capitalists are with me, one of whom's getting mic'd, but we really don't want to hear from him anyway, so it's totally fine if it's just Steve and Nancy. Um, <laughs> We're fine with that. Fine, you're, you're fine with that, right? Um, so let me introduce people, and then we'll, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, Mike Weintraub, someone we've backed a couple of times before, uh, who started and is a partner at Optum Ventures. He likes to face backwards when he addresses <laughs> an audience. Oh, there we go. Uh, Steve Krause, who, uh, who runs the Bessemer Venture Partners Office in Cambridge. Nancy Brown, another great serial entrepreneur uh, who's at Oak HCFT. Thank you. Healthcare FinTech. She's on the HC side of things. Um, so it's a treat having you. You know that love you have for brothers and sisters? That's the love I have. That's all right. That's the love I have for, the, for these, these three people. So that's, that's how we all think about each other. So hopefully we won't all say the same thing. I'm going to try and be provocative in some of, some of my questions. Um, and remember, we are at a wearables, digital health, and neurotech conference. Wow. OK. Um, but let's start off with a few rapid fire yes, no questions. Medicare for all. Are you in favor or not? Nancy, yes, no. These are no maybe. This is yes, no. Medicare, Medicare for all. I'm good with that, too. So that's a yes. I mean, it's such a complicated, complicated, complicated <laughs> topic, Bill, but I would say no if I had to choose. And I would love to explain, but I'll say no. Mike, no. OK, I'm a yes. So we're evenly split on that one. Would, next one, yes, no. You don't get a vote. Would you, would you I'm the moderator. I can do whatever. Would you likely make an involve, would you, would you make an investment today in a wearables company a specialized wearables company. I like if, that you get to go first. Yes, no. <laughs> no. Yes. I'm, I'm a no as well. Oh, wow. And we are at a wearables conference, but we're going to come <laughs> back. We are going to come sorry. back to that one. Uh, I'm going to add one. Artificial intelligence, yes. overhyped or really going to deliver in a big way? Mike. Really going to deliver in a big way. Yeah, underhyped. Who cares if it doesn't produce results? What is that? Is that a yes or a no? <laughs> That's overhyped considering how much it's delivered to actually improving results. I say underhyped. I'm a big fan of AI as well. OK, pick one health tech company that is, it, it, can, it can be one of my investments. It can be anybody's investment. Yours or, or anyone else's. Well, I'll pick each other's companies uh, that you think will be the one company to watch in 2018. Nancy. Aspire, our palliative care company. Okay, I have a pet peeve. I hate when venture capitalists name their own companies, no offense. So I'm going to pick two. One's my own company, one's not. Uh, my own company, full declaration, is Bright Health. My not company is Freenome, which is in the liquid biopsy space. Mm. He's had a lot of coffee. Uh, so You're picking Mindstrong, I'm I know. I'm picking Mindstrong. I knew that. Which we made an investment in, which you just heard about, so I don't have to tell you what they do. 
I'm gonna pick Bright Health as well. <sighs> nice. Bright wins. Bright wins, exactly. Um, <laughs> we're gonna open this up to Q&A from the audience too in a minute, but let me, let me run through some of these. And now we're gonna veer from the yes, no, if you're okay with a little more substance around, around, the, around the answer. Um, what are the most important attributes you look for in an early stage investment? And talk a little about your investment size and you know, desired stage where, where you'd like to start. Nancy, go ahead. Um, so in our first fund, which was a $500 million fund, we did everything from single digit millions to a buyout. Um, and all the opportunities we look for are probably the same attributes, which is total addressable market that you can actually get to, not one of those funny like $29 billion numbers, but a number that's, that's real. The team um, and um, a sense of urgency from the market to acquire the thing that you're talking about or selling. So those are all good. By the way, Bright Health definitely has a $29 billion market. Um, <laughs> Huge. Uh, uh, but um, I actually think those are all the right ones. I mean, I think the one thing that Bessemer that we look for across healthcare and technology, because we're a broad-based fund, um, is an entrepreneur. I think the really great companies have an entrepreneur who like live, breathe, die, want to solve the problem that they're solving. And so like, the most recent investment we made was in a company called Groups. It's in the opioid management space, um, obviously a massive epidemic. The founder is a doctor, MD. This is his first business he's ever run. He's a relatively young entrepreneur, but like he graduated from Tuck Business School. He went and worked in the hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He saw these patients come in. He saw them get discharged. He saw them come back. He's like, this is a really shitty way that we're dealing with these patients, and he set out to solve that problem. And he was really like deeply passionate about that problem, and if you meet with him, you can just feel that. And I think our great companies, you know, Shopify, uh, Box, uh, you know, LinkedIn, Pinterest, um, Blue Apron, like those entrepreneurs all have that sort of just like, they live, die, breathe their, their, their product or the service they're providing. And so that's like, the, that's the thing that we look for entrepreneurs to spike on. Um, we invest anywhere from 100K um, to $100 million in a company. So we have a wide spectrum and literally we'll do everything from a seed check to um, a growth equity check too, so. So uh, a lot of the same attributes with a little different filter because um, we're, part of a, we're part of a corporation. We are a separate LLC. It's a $250 million fund. Mm -hmm. But we look for a filter where we can um, get an unfair advantage through Optum's channels, distribution, and market-making power. So today, we're not a full-spectrum investor. We won't do seeds um, because we're looking for a company where when we turn on Optum, they can catch that level of horsepower. So we'll typically come in uh, at the A or the B uh, we're not doing late stage growth, private equity, or buyouts today. That might change as the fund continues to grow and, and advance. But today, it's digital health. We're not doing anything that requires hardcore science or FDA approval. We'll do 510K clinical decision support. We'll put in from a million or more um, <clears throat> up to whatever's required throughout the investment, um, but typically A's and B's. And uh, we're looking for things that are not part of the short or near-term product roadmap. So if you have a slightly better care coordination product, which may or may not be a great investment at a pure play level, um, Optum's not going to leverage that in its portfolio of 550 products. But if you're doing something like MindStrong uh, with the kind of uh, capability that's not going to be designed within Optum typically, uh, we'll take that and we'll look for ways to leverage the 30,000 nurses or the 25,000 physicians or the 4,000 providers or the 300 payers or the 150 life science companies or the 250 Fortune 500 companies that 
Optum does business with, or the 55 million insured members of United that are accessing Optum's technology all the time on behalf of United, which is a customer of Optum. So we're looking for leverage points to drive, to drive value so we can be a strategic investor as opposed to purely capital. And, and, and how active are you, are you as investors? We're active early stage investors of Flare Capital, super involved. How, how, active, how active are you, Steve? Scale of one to 10. And I just finished a board call with you about 30 <laughs> minutes before we walked into this room. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's really situational. And, and I, I'm going to say something that probably maybe some VCs won't say. But um, honestly, your best companies sometimes you're the least active. <laughs> like really good entrepreneurs know how to make shit happen. And um, your job as a VC is to know when to help them and hopefully to earn their trust that they'll call you when they need help. But sometimes. Honestly, in Bessemer, across some of those companies I named, like those entrepreneurs, they, they just got stuff done. Um, so that's the real honest answer. I mean, you know, not every company is um, takes off like a rocket ship. So in you know, we're, we try to be as helpful as we can, but we, we we're sort of mindful of who we are. We're minority investors. We don't own, manage, run the company. That's not our job. We want to be a first call relationship. We want to earn the trust of the entrepreneur that they'll call us on a Sunday night. I work all hours of the week. Um, so that's really the truthful answer is I sort of look to my entrepreneurs to tell me the cadence of how to be involved. And I think it's across the spectrum. Of, you know, I have 12 or 15 portfolio companies, and it's really across the spectrum how involved I am. So let's, let's jump in then to, to kind of the topics of, of today. So, so digital health, Nancy, there's been some criticism uh, that there's been a lot of great investment, uh, but maybe not a lot of evidence or proof or outcomes that digital health is really, is really working. Uh, is that true? Do you agree with that? What, what, what are the right measurement yardsticks to say that digital health is working or not working? Well, first you have to figure out what that word means. So I started in healthcare before we called yeah. it digital health. It was analog health, right, <laughs> when you started? Nice. It was like, so I just think of it as applying computers <laughs> and technology to healthcare, which is a very broad category. And some people think of it as wearables and other things. But Can I interrupt uh, you for one? You know, yes. this, these are not very female-friendly mics. So I just want to go on the record saying I acknowledge that. It's hanging on the back of your dress. It just doesn't. So I'm just acknowledging they're not very female-friendly. Not only are the microphones not female friendly, neither are the stools. Just to <laughs> I'm not moving. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> um, it's a big topic lately about females in venture capital. I'm going to put that at the top of the list of things that are discouraging people from being in venture capital is Perfect. stools and microphones. Perfect. Yes, that'll be it. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so the question at hand. So what do I think? I think that, um, um, and we've been on many panels together, all of us, so we talk all the time about return on investment. So it's been very hard for me to think about these digital health investments that are sort of nice to haves, or um, if you do this and then this and then this and then three other things, something good might come out of it. So I and I probably have maybe even been involved in some of those companies that were very and so is Michael, so is other people. I mean, we are both operators, so. Um, in That's how we have Steve between us. <laughs> we have Steve between us. <laughs> I don't know anything. <laughs> so I think um, what we really look for is very practical, tactical impacts of technology. And the kinds of things that I probably love the most, getting back to AI for a minute, is the practical use of that to make things more efficient and effective. So I'm not, and Steve does <coughs> biotech, we do not. So we're not really looking at sort of the whiz-bang things, implantables in my world. I'm looking at how do you apply technology to what has been very inconsistent manual processes, clinical and administrative, and make them a lot more efficient. And that's where AI and just um, 
uh, uh, cloud-based platforms like my days at Athena, where we were able to take all of this information that normally has been distributed in individual practices. We aggregated it in one place. It became a learning network. We, you know, they now support 100,000 providers, and they deliver a, almost 100% consistent revenue cycle process against doctors of all different sizes and shapes. So that's when I think about technology, I think about sort of bending the curve on both the achievement of quality and cost. And probably I'm, I don't have, I'm not in all the sort of sexy spaces of uh, yeah. other types of digital. But I, I think, I mean, I think this industry, let's call it digital health. I mean, I think this term was coined, I don't exactly know what it means either, but it was coined maybe within the last seven years. Um, and I, I think you gotta look at it, I, to me this question is sort of, there's several different elements, right? You can look at it from a public policy perspective. You can look at it from a clinical perspective, which Nancy talked about. And then you can look at it from like a financial market perspective. I mean, I think from a public policy perspective, the digital health revolution has undoubtedly been a massive success. I mean, if you think about what High Tech Act did, which was literally you know, 2009, and fast forward less than 10 years, and we have an entire industry that was basically analog to digital, like that's, we'll look back like 50 years and be like, that was a fundamentally radical, revolutionary thing that happened through public policy. One of the best pieces of public policy, I think, slipped into a recovery act. Um, so I think like, we should view that as a success. Clinically, I think we're seeing like progress. I think you know the work that Nancy did at Athena and, and Michael did at Humedica. Like this is amazing, right? That you know now you're actually able to analyze populations, analyze individual, analyze data to really provide better you know care at the population level and at the individual level. Like this again, this is like totally radical, right? Like this is like basically solving polio essentially. I mean these are these are major major things. And now you're seeing like digital therapies being improved. You're seeing CBT you know digitally happening. Like we're making great strides. And then finally, I think financially. As investors, that's a real question mark, right? Where everyone says, oh my God, Rock Health, a billion dollars over the last four years, $3.5 billion this year, where are the exits? And what I say is like, give it time. You know, we're like seven, five to seven years into this industry of sort of massive you know, investment because of some of these macro trends we just talked about. Like, it's gonna take a while. Like, let's ask five years from now how things are going, and it better be going well by that point. <laughs> but I think a five-year mark to say, how are we doing as a financial return, I think that's a little too early. So, so what's the issue, Steve, keep going on that. What's the issue with specialized wearables and, and kind of unique devices? What's the business issue that keeps investors from making a leap, whether they're invasive, non-invasive, slightly invasive, um, all of which you know was touched on in some earlier presentations today. What's the fundamental issue that keeps investors from specialized wearables? Um, me, me. Um, I, I think. Uh, I mean, I think it's not. I think some investors get scared away by sort of hardware and capital capex, but I don't. There's a lot of investors who'll do it, so I don't think that's the issue. That's sort of the easy venture answer that you get when they pass. Oh, it's hardware. That's a stupid answer. Um, I think the real question is business model. Right? I think it's sort of how do you engage, how do you have a business model? Because healthcare is still B2B to C, and so do you, how do you have a business model that sort of navigates that kind of you know, um, uh, value chain, if you will, to make sure that you provide ROI for the payer, which is the enterprise, and then also get consumers to engage? And, and I don't, you know, that's a hard one to solve, right? I mean, the reason I always like the Mata, and I like some of the, we didn't make, invest in them like Livongo, is because Again, to the analog digital, you know, the idea of measuring A1C, that happened in the old world. So people are used to doing it. Diabetics are used to measuring A1C. They have to do that. So you weren't really changing their workflow. So it was easy to engage those patients. I think some of these other areas, you got to think about how you get engagement at the end of the day, because that's going to drive clinical ROI. So you mentioned Livongo. So um, uh, Mike, maybe this is for you. Um, but so 
you know, personally. The question about chronic mm -hmm. conditions, and, and obviously, again, you've had a personal experience with, with, uh, with diabetes in your family. Um, so is that the right way to think about these health tech opportunities? Should we think about different chronic conditions, uh, neuro, diabetes, CHF, COPD, um, and do you imagine that, that those solutions will deliver? I mean, the two things that have to be delivered, of course, in any one of our health tech investments are lowering costs and or improving outcomes. When you have both, that's a winning combination. When you have one, that's necessary, may not be sufficient. Right. When you have neither, it's not, a good, it's not a good investment opportunity. But so when I think of these almost siloed individual chronic condition solutions, is that the best way to attack, to attack the opportunity? Yeah. I like that approach. I know Glenn, who founded Lavango quite well. He's a good friend of mine. If you talk to him, uh, he will tell you that he's not stopping with diabetes. Um, it's a big epidemic. It's a chronic condition. And what he's done is he's combined technology, data-driven solution, services into the workflow where he can actually drive an ROI. And so a lot of the things you see out there that are just data or just software or just services are not providing a continuous flow from identifying the patient or the problem all the way to an ROI. They're a feature or they're a product or I hate to use the word middleware. They're, they're not going to sustain. The buyer is not going to buy something that they need to connect to seven other things like they used to in the old days. But if you take a look at diabetes and you realize that he can move into uh, uh, hyperlipidemia and hypertension and Heart, heart diseases, because diabetics have heart disease and stroke and so forth. Uh, he's got a roadmap that he doesn't talk about too often because he's being a bit quiet about, <clears throat> but he will talk about it uh, periodically. And he is planning on moving vertically across those areas, but diabetes is so big he doesn't want to move too quickly. I think the only other point I'd make is part of the issue is that the tier one questions that we all ask are, is it defensible? Is, it the, mar is the market big enough? Is there... What is it about it that's going to sustain? Um, and those are the, is the PNL believable? Is the team backable? So those are all the tier one questions. I think the tier two questions in digital health are more important than ever before, which is will the buyer, how will the buyer plug this in? Will the buyer make the decision to spend money on this and plug it in and take the risk? And or are there barriers in this complicated market where even though the solution is inferior if done by an EMR, they control the workflow, or even though the solution is inferior by an uh, equipment company like Philips or someone else, they control the mind share of those individuals. And unless you work through them in a distribution mechanism, there is no way you're going to distribute to that population on your own. So you have to work backwards I from if you truly understand the problem and you believe it's going to benefit the patient, that's not good enough because the patient in a B2B2C model is rarely, if ever, the payer. And so whether it's the employer, the life science company, the provider, the payer, who's going to pay for it and why? And how does it get plugged in into a workflow situation where the physicians, the nurses, the caregivers are taxed and overwhelmed by so many things they need to touch that unless there's a mechanism to force it to become part of their daily routine, which is why the companies that succeed spend a lot of time living at the customer and truly understanding what is going on. Yeah, I, I, just to jump on there, I mean, I think this, I think this is, like, I love the tier two question. He, 
he's definitely an operator. Um, uh, you know, and a good one. But I think the I think this I think it's a good debate about this. You know, you, you sort of you, you ask about these specialized wearables, and and the way I kind of think about it, if you take my technology hat on, is it's sort of like horizontal SaaS versus vertical SaaS, right? And in the software as a service market, you saw. a you know, first a lot of horizontal companies, sort of really enterprise platforms, and then you saw, you know, now there's a vertical SaaS company for everything. There's, you know, survey tools for companies, right? And so I wonder in this space whether you do want to have best of breed vertical, you know, you know, um, uh, wearables and, and digital health. The problem there is though, you see a proliferation of companies, right? And so to, to Michael's point about really how does the buyer integrate this into the workflow, um, you know, it's I think why. You know, Nancy and I, my firms made investments in like you know a Limeade or or, or WellTalk is because those two companies are trying to be platforms that people plug into, and sort of be the integrative sort of glue. But I just think it's a real question, and we'll see how it plays and, out and whether there's going to be best of breed or isn't that the way customers though uh, plans large employers would want to acquire digital health solutions buy a platform have curated digital health solutions have a company that stands behind them that kind of proves that patient engagement can increase. And have them kind of be, you know, have them find the people who are most likely to adopt certain digital health solutions and therefore have the plan or employer buy a platform with a bunch of curated solutions rather than, I mean, do you really imagine that plans are going to integrate 20 different digital health solutions or employer, large employers will? So, well, yeah, you brought, so this is, um, I work a lot with Sean Levitt, who's a, who runs Comcast um, Benefits. Um, total rewards, I think it's called now. And his, in his world, it's like running a health plan. So he's done the analysis of his base, which is, I don't know what it is, three, 350,000 lives or 400,000, which is his employees. They run from uh, Comcast people that you hate who come to your house and fix things and might annoy you to, to uh, the Saturday Night Live crew. Did great at the Emmys. Anyone noticed? It's great. Um, <laughs> And uh, everyone in between, so he's got this very diverse population, and he has gone through a deep analysis of what that population needs and where he needs to close gaps, and, and also how he can control costs. So he's done everything from curating the network that they use to determining exactly all of these digital tools. And so exactly, he's so annoyed and frustrated, and he's sort of at an end up too, like where yeah, he's got- Yeah, he's like super progressive. Well, he's super yeah. progressive, where he's willing to actually pilot all of these. He's, he went through pilots of diabetes, uh, mindfulness, Second opinion, he actually, in some cases, fundamentally changed the companies, which is good or bad, depending on which side of it you were on. And then he had to figure out how to make that all available to his employees. And I'm just giving this example because this is what people have to go through to integrate. And he did that by creating a service layer through a company called Accolade, uh, which is a, just an entire, eliminated all of his employees ever going to a health plan call center or the PBM call center or the dental call center. So all calls, I forget what it is, it's like unbelievable number. 75% yeah. of all inquiries about anything to do with your health goes through, this, through these humans who then who then puts you into the programs that you belong in. So it's really the point, Michael made like 17 points. He was talking about like workflow integration and all that, but going back to adoption by the, um, by the end user, it's very hard. You probably all have health benefits plans. And if you go on to the Aetna site or Harvard Vanguard or whatever, Harvard Pilgrim, you'll find some connection to telemedicine or it's something. Awful. It's all disconnected. It's not being delivered the way they expect it. And therefore, they're paying for a service that they're not getting benefits from. So employers, in my opinion, are the most progressive, these progressive employers, these few, in figuring out how to bring them all together, integrate them through technology, like, like uh, Limeade or WellTalk, and then creating a service layer to filter people in. And they can afford to do that because if they filter the right person into the right cancer treatment, it'll pay for the service for 
a month or more. So let, let's, uh, let's segue and touch on FDA approval for a second. We, we, we're yeah. all making investments in companies that, that we're not seeking out an FDA regulatory path in our investments. Yeah. In fact, we're trying to, we're, yeah. we're trying to largely avoid them um, uh, apart I'm the from- the only dumb one. He's the one exactly, <laughs> apart from traditional biotech or you know, legacy med device investing. Um, so you've, you've made investments in companies that go after the palliative care, the end of life opportunity yeah. uh, in Aspire Health, of course. Um, as well as in a company focused on substance abuse uh, issues. Um, so Pair Therapeutics locally just got yeah. FDA approval. How big a deal is that? Who really cares? Will that, will that make them a market winner in what arguably might be a market that already has a lot of solutions? Uh, what difference does that really make uh, practically commercially in your judgment? Steve? I, I mean, I think it's huge. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, well, let's just start with patients, right? I mean, you know, there are certain indications where pill plus digital intervention is better than pill alone or digital intervention alone, right? And so the idea now that we have a company who has, you know, taken uh, that approach and that we have an FDA, I actually, I actually think Scott Godley is doing a really great job across a, a number of dimensions, regardless of what your politics are. He's trying to really make that agency innovative. And so I, I think it's really, really important. He's hiring the first ever digital head. Um, and then, so that's sort of just, at the end of the day, I think patients are gonna benefit, right? And so I, I think that's fantastic. Um, and that's why you do, we all do this, right? I mean, it'd be much easier to be a hedge fund manager than a healthcare entrepreneur. It'd be much easier to be a hedge fund manager than a healthcare investor. It's much easier to invest in you know, Pinterest, I can tell you, than in health, health enterprises. The reason we all do this is because we care about, you know making a difference. So I think for patients, that's awesome. And then you look at Pair, they're actually taking you know, off-the-shelf generics and wrapping digital therapeutics around them. And so from your point about not only are they getting better quality and care for the patients, but they're also maybe even getting better costs. I mean, I think it's awesome. And uh, I think Boston, I know we're going to talk a little bit about Boston. I think Boston has to kick ass in this area. Like, we have to win this area. We have to, I think we have to win healthcare IT because I think it'll be a massive industry and we can't lose it to Silicon Valley. I think we definitely have to win the intersection of pharmaceuticals and, and digital. If we lose that to Silicon Valley, shame on all of us. Mm. Uh, I, I do agree that Massachusetts is a leader in this area. We, 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 we certainly are all working hard to kind of maintain that. Uh, does that really matter, though, other than for bragging rights? And what are the other cities where, where uh, broadly health tech, digital health, uh, is advancing rapidly? We, I'll, I'll start. So we have. Um, a lot of investments in New York City. So I'm a New Yorker, although I've been here since I... Are you for, really? Yes. Uh, although I've been here for a really long time, for over 30 years. But I um, uh, not with my sports affiliations, yeah, just to be nice. absolutely clear. Um, Bruins won last night. No one wow. cares. Yeah, <laughs> right. You are Anyone? really a Boston's man. Okay, are you on the TB12 diet? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Avocado ice cream. Are you yeah. 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 Um, no. Yes. Anyway, so the... Um, um, uh, what was I saying when I, when I, you're I, your I, I went, fan. I New went York. Bruins, I went Bruins, I, <laughs> New York. so we have a lot, so anyway, what I was going to say is I never in my life thought I would go downtown, to, I'd go to Soho to, to see my companies, so go up above uh, Valentino's to, to visit companies, so New York is, is doing really, really well, it's amazing, um, and Chicago has been really strong for us, there's some markets that are really actually underserved by, by venture, you know, Boston is very interesting, I'd love to see more here. Um, I think one thing that worries me is our delivery systems are um, having grown up professionally in Boston and then moving to Minneapolis and to Atlanta. People didn't want to hear about the Boston experience. They don't want to hear it. 
because they feel like we have, that we are arrogant on the medical side, um, that we don't listen. In general, I think we're arrogant in general. <laughs> in general, I don't know general, but just certainly when it comes to um, healthcare, and, um, and also I think some of the, the venues that we have, particularly in the metro area, in the Boston area, are not like other health systems in other parts of the country. So it's good to get out. Maybe Springfield, good, good, good place to get out to. <laughs> I mean, it is one of the unique things, I think, about our market. There are a dozen cities across the U.S. that have an ecosystem where, where health tech is really happening. Minneapolis, Nashville, obviously the West Coast, yeah, L.A., Houston. Um, so uh, from an investor point of view, we're, we're all over the place mm -hmm. geographically or in terms of the companies and the entrepreneurs and founders we're all backing. Um, yeah, I think, by the way, just to jump in, I think the issue with Massachusetts, and I think it's changing. You've been working on it with the governor. Um, I was involved originally. Historically, having done six startups, none of my customers, initial customers, alphas, betas, pilots, were ever here. Yeah, right. Right. Because the rarefied air of Massachusetts, uh, frankly, they job shop you, and um, they make you build products that are not consumable by Healthcare America. Over the past 12 to 24 months, there's been a lot of conversation with CEOs of payers and providers and life science companies around the table. Um, and uh, I was one of those who stirred the pot a bit, maybe too much, but the comment was, why do you make it so hard for vendors? And if you want this to happen here, you've got to be more friendly and take on projects and pilots and be consuming the innovation that occurs here. And over the past 12 to 24 months, as I've talked to a bunch of CEOs in the area, I am finding a lot more of those initial customers are local than, in my, than in my last 35 years combined. Yeah, that's good. That is tremendous. But if we don't fix that and accelerate that, we are going to lose. And, and you're right yeah. about, well, you're the, right about the early adopters are not going to be the high cost, okay. high quality provider systems that are academic medical centers like right. we have in Boston. Right. I, just, I mean, I just think like, um, and I, you know, I mean, I, I, I like Charlie a lot. I think Baker. I think he's doing a, a good job here. But I just think, it, you know, what the pharma industry here is such a massive success. I mean, right. you know, if, if you look at the high tech, you know, venture growth entrepreneurial sector, like we kick butt in that sector. Like people move here. Large companies move here. It's been a massive economic engine, and we lost this. You know, we we had a. You know, this place was king in the 1970s and 80s in terms of venture and entrepreneurship. It was on the tech side, and we lost it because we didn't, we didn't, we didn't win the social game, right? We lost the social game. We can't lose this game. You know, to basically digitize and consumerize an industry that is the largest piece of our economy, it's gonna be a massive industry 20, 10, 15 years from now. Like, we have to win this as Massachusetts. I, I just, I can't yeah. believe we don't. We won't. So a couple more questions before we open it up uh, to the audience. The Washington landscape, healthcare reform is you know, about to be voted on perhaps again between now and September 30, Graham Cassidy. Uh, what the, it's been, what, 11 months since the election? Hillary won, right? Was that right? Sorry, um, it was close. I forget, yeah. Um, so what is happening in, in healthcare reform in Washington? Uh, are, are, are you sitting on the sidelines while you kind of wait and see? How do you make investments with, with that cloud of uncertainty? So you know, since you backed Humedica, that we started Humedica six months before Obamacare. And so uh, it turned out to be an advantage for us. Uh, <laughs> we had to name, change the name of the company from Health Insight Technologies, because he took HIT away from us. But um, <laughs> the bottom line is this. We're not on the sidelines. Whatever happens, there's an opportunity. And I don't think that we can sit on the sidelines and wait for government to declare. Either way, 
there's going to be an opportunity for providers and payers. They might shift how they use the data and the technology based on the risk they have to take and how they have to respond to the risk. But we're, we're moving ahead, and we don't, we don't see the opportunity decreasing. We see it just tweaking one way or the other, depending on the situation. But either way, the, the assets are still critical. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I, I think um, as, as a person who cares about public policy and as for some of my investments, I hope, I think Obamacare, or let's, you know, PPACA was a brilliantly crafted law. We could talk about it offline. I think it was just brilliant in many ways. It has its flaws, as every law does. I think, as, so I hope it doesn't get overturned. That being said, if I were an entrepreneur, if there are entrepreneurs in the audience, I'd actually hope it might, because I think you know, very successful entrepreneurs, I mean, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars of, of personal wealth has been created by like reading the legislation and creating companies out of it, right? Because there, there, there will be things in our system that change overnight, or maybe over the next five years because of this piece of legislation. So I would encourage everyone who's an entrepreneur to read it and try to figure out where there's an opportunity to create a new company. Um, I think. That happened with PPACA, it'll happen this time, and as an entrepreneur, it's actually a really interesting piece of, of reading to create a new company around. Yeah, and, and I mean, health, healthcare is relentlessly incremental, and so we will keep seeing all of those changes. It's just, a, it's part of the fabric, I think, right, of this space. So, quick question for all of you, Nancy, starting with you. Uh, who's the most vulnerable legacy healthcare solutions provider today? Pick one company, Steve likes to pick two, but pick one, pick one company, the most vulnerable, the one most likely to be disrupted. Uh, a name, not a, not a category. A name, and not a category. Aetna. I, I want to hear why afterwards. OK. Um, I would say WebMD. I would say name any EMR. So I'm with you. A technology company. I, I'm with you. I would say Epic. Uh, so why, why Aetna? I just think, so. Um, um, so I think yeah, I just picked. I could have picked Opt. I could have picked Optum. <laughs> Michael's gonna be disrupted. <laughs> no. So that's I why they have a venture arm. Right? So all these corporate groups that's have a venture arm. That's why they're arm. diversifying over there, right? So they have enough diversification. <laughs> Better hurry up. Trying to chase the diversification. That's awesome. I think that um, first of all, if you look at the number of entrepreneurs who are coming into the health plan space, so you have Bright, and um, and there are many others that are coming in and starting. MA plans, uh, Medicare Advantage plans, and I think they're going to, and we've got some examples of plans that have come in, some, some that are more parlor tricks than real substance, but they look good. <laughs> I won't name names. And, um, but at the end of the day, when you take a look at what health plans um, are doing, they're really not insuring very many people anymore. They're mostly just administrative services. They're processing claims. They're doing things that are very pedestrian. I, was a, I, I ran a health plan for a while, so I take this very seriously, that there are competencies that the health plans need to have. So what I worry about is, is if we, if, based on some of the conversations I'm having, and I'm sure you're having in Bright and other places, if we're able to actually eliminate the, the need for the payer to provide administrative services, and, we're, and some of these new entrants are better, uh, because they're maybe closer to the populations, at clinical services, and the use of new tech stacks, they're not stuck to legacy systems. New tech stacks to be really efficient and effective. And think about things like replacing old nurse call centers with really efficient texting and use of bots and things. I just think it's a whole different mentality, different DNA. I think that is going to be, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to be the sort of the final death blow to the health plans. Yep. And I just picked Aetna, but you could just fill in the blank. Uh, quick, quick question to the audience. How many um, health tech entrepreneurs or aspiring health tech entrepreneurs do we have, do we have in the crowd today? Less than before we started. 
So, um, so Steve, to you, what, what advice do you have for our health tech entrepreneurs or aspiring health tech entrepreneurs? Oh, man. I think it goes back to the point I made. Uh, you know, my sister's an entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur. I get to work with entrepreneurs every day. It, it's, like, the best thing because, you know, um, by definition, entrepreneurs doing the impossible with limited resources and is constantly being told no and, um, and getting no's. And these pe I just admire the perseverance. But I think in order to have that perseverance, I mean, it's, it's a fundamental characteristic you have to have. But I think you also have to be just really passionate and convinced that what you're trying to create has to exist in this world. And so, I, you know, there are some entrepreneurs I see who come in who I just, I'm not necessarily sure that that's, you know, that, it, you know, it's another, I don't know, another care management 2.0 company to use right. your, you know, I think you got to be really passionate. And maybe you are passionate about care management. That's awesome because you've seen it be really bad. But um, you just got to have that because it's, it's so freaking hard. It's so freaking hard. Um, so I know that's not that optimistic, but um, I, I hope you find something that you really love to get up to work every day and, and you know, convince those people who said no that they're wrong. And, and how many people are working with companies in or around the neurotech area? That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Um, so maybe that'll be some of our questions as well. We'd love to open it up uh, for Q&A before, before we uh, move out uh, to the lobby area and network. And so uh, you, you might want to step up to the microphones, but I know we can hear you uh, either way, I'm sure. I was surprised. Is this on? Yep, that is. OK. I was surprised when you asked you know, what legacy systems are most vulnerable. Nobody mentioned big healthcare systems. They're the biggest problem in many ways that you have. We need them to sell into. We need them because they are the users. But I'll give you an example of what, what, what I find with my clients. Here I have a client, a typical example. I have a client who has uh, gotten investor money for a uh, care management and financial risk remediation org company that utilizes blockchain as an immutable record. The biggest problem that, that we have is getting health systems who automatically know that this will reduce the amount of employees that they will have, simplify systems. Everything that you just said, we are, typically what we get is the long administrative no from the executives who say, great idea, but not today. I, I think we all believe that the health systems are gonna, are gonna be uh, disrupted. You mentioned Aetna, and so th there's just no I think we're in violent agreement on that point. No question about Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I could talk to you about that. Uh, another question. Steve, I'd like to circle back to some of the points you made about how important it is for us to win and win here, particularly with you know, the community that's been accrued over the last decade or two of healthcare companies. I'm with Johnson & Johnson. So I'd be really interested to hear what you've seen that you're encouraged by, how the, you know, the players there are doing things that you feel like are important for them to do. And, where do you think they're not stepping up? What are the things you think big companies ought to be doing that would enable some of the things that you think are critical in this convergence of technology and so making So what I'm encouraged, and by the way, I agree with Bill and others that in the rarefied era of Boston healthcare, just because you nail it by working with Mass General doesn't mean you can sell to the rest of America. But it is easier to get work done locally if you can find an organization, learn the workflow, and so forth. What's happening over the past year is Roughly two dozen organizations, payers like Harvard Pilgrim, providers like Betsy Nabel, um, life science companies like Biogen, and employers as well, 
are appointing individuals and teams with title of innovation somewhere in there, and they're actually meeting in predetermined settings with companies looking for sponsors for pilots, and they are raising their hand, and they are agreeing to do the work over a six to 12 month period, and that's moving the organization from a, se a seed to having the milestones and the commercial validation in place to then go to Bill or go to Nancy or others and say, we have the proof, we have the early stage success, we'd like to do a Series A. I think it's really hard to go from pre-Series A to A, yeah. and I think one of the hardest things there is to have two to three to four organizations that say, we solved a problem, we'll re-up, we'll expand for that targeted population, and I see that happening a lot. Pulse in Boston is doing quite a bit of that in the digital health area. It's not enough. It's still, it's still not going to assure the success you're talking about, Steve. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a lot more, but I think the state's working on that pretty hard. It's got to be a coming together of all the stakeholders. The only thing they have in common is the consuming patient. And for the first time, I'm starting to see people saying, we're in. That wasn't the case when I started Humedica. Okay. Trend that you're feeling good about, Steve, yourself? You see enough of this, or? What's that? Uh, I was just oh, asking whether or not Steve has seen I, enough I, of this. I think, um, I think we have a lot of different microeconomies in healthcare. I think that the, the place where I'm most uh, excited is this intersection between pharma and digital health, yeah. because I think it, it, we have a natural strength. I, I always try to play to comparative advantage. We kick San Francisco's butt, even though they want to talk about computational biology, no offense. Um, you know, we just kick their butt when it comes to action. Like, this stuff's been happening at the Broad and the Whitehead for years. Like, we're, we're just so far ahead that, and so I think where we can find the adjacency of digital health to one of our strengths is the pharma IT intersection. Yeah. And so I would really play on that. I actually think a bunch of the pharma companies are, have good innovation arms, have good venture arms already. A lot of them are used to investing in biotech, but they're realizing that it's an imperative, an economic imperative for their business to get involved in digital health for companies like Pair and others. And so I think we should really just be very focused on that first and win that. And then one of the problems with our health systems is a lot of them are nonprofits, right? And so just the idea of, of innovation and economic sort of, you know, the economic ROI, sometimes it just doesn't, um, it doesn't resonate as much. And also, they've gone through a pretty bad experience with the first generation of EMRs. Even though I think EMRs, by general, are a huge success and really important for our industry, the whole implementation adoption has not been smooth for these guys. And they've spent hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. So there's just a negative, there's still a little negative culture around technology in our health systems across and America. I, but and here, and I would agree we, with you today. I don't think that was the case five years ago. Five years ago, pharma, biotech was still discovering, developing, totally distributing right. drugs. 99% gross margin, let's yeah. just do the drug thing. Pharma and biotech can actually make decisions and move faster than pairs and providers. I went to an event about a year or two ago, and the CEO of Pfizer said something to his entire executive team, and they looked puzzled, and he said, we need to stop being viewed as a discovery, development, distributor of drugs, and we need to be viewed as a partner with providers in delivering health. Mm -hmm. And that's your point. Mm -hmm. And so they are starting to focus on efficacy and value and outcomes. They are starting to take on risk for outcomes. It's, it's out there in the literature. They're starting to agree to be paid based on specific metrics for outcomes for patient cohorts. And so if you have technology or data, for, and they love therapeutically specific solutions. And so I think it's a, it's a great playground, to your point. Yeah. All right, we have time, time for one more question. We have someone teed up. So I recall three of you were excited about the uh, AI and in the context of biotech and healthcare. So I'm just curious when it comes to the applications of it, what areas or area you think have been underexplored in general? 
Um, all areas. Um, I, mean, I don't do biotech, but one so. One area. <laughs> um, <laughs> two, he said one area. <laughs> that means two, if you're speaking. Two, that means yeah. two. Um, so uh, the biggest issue I have, which I'm consistent about talking about, is that AI is disconnected from workflow in my world. So people come and they're like, look at this great AI. We put data together. We detected something, which is the, like, the best thing ever for someone who spent their life aggregating data in, in healthcare. The thought that someone can take it and detect something that's not really detectable is amazing. But if you don't actually, if you're not able to take action on it, then it's useless. So, um, so um, putting together some panels for another event, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's 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 really like it, no one. When AI is really good, the people in the operations, you know, the the, the nurse in the on the ward, when AI is being applied, she has no idea. Like that's when magic happens, which is there's something happening Works behind the scenes. And and the, the simplest example I'll give you, which will be so pedestrian to this group is one from Athena, which is we bought this company called Smart Scheduling from an MIT grad. And they did a basic thing, which is they predicted if someone was going to come in for an appointment. And I was like, OK, that doesn't sound really that exciting, nor is it a platform. Then they took me down to see it applied. And as soon as they got to the threshold, if it wasn't going to be uh, the person was going to come in, a smart schedule, a smart slot showed up on the, on the desk. So that's nobody, money. That's money for that's a doc, That's money. Yeah. So nobody had to figure out, oh, there's some AI thing running. And there's and usually what the way that works is there's an AI thing over here. And something over here tells you that this person's not going to come in. And somehow that's got to get connected back. And then you have to build it in. And it never happens. So I know that sounds like, so the really smart, intelligent part of AI is getting done. The ability to make it actionable and to turn it into money or quality or whatever is what's not happening, at least in my part of healthcare. And, and I'll, I'll add one other. Clinical decision support, I think, is a great, a great area, which is you know in the clinician workflow, at the point of care, having AI-assisted technology to grab all of your data at the patient level, grab your information compared to everyone else who looks like you and has, and has had outcomes that may or may not be the path you're on, and to make recommendations at the point of care for the clinician uh, that, that would alter the treatment plan, narrow it, make it more specific and, and precise to you, and be self-learning. I think clinical decision support is an obvious, an obvious and really interesting application area for AI. So I couldn't help myself but to add one. Nancy, Steve, Mike, thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. I know Thanks we'll all so. be available uh, out front. And look forward to uh, seeing you then and chatting thank then. You. Thank you. Thank you.